Well, welcome everybody. It's Jeff Salzman, and uh, this is the Daily Evolver for Tuesday, November 28th, 2017. And today, I wanted to explore this area of, you know, the, 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 of the, the male-female dynamics that is so arising in our culture today. And, um, and, and, and explore what I think is some of the sticking points of uh, a postmodern view that keeps the postmodern view from becoming more uh, 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 sticky for people who don't share it. And I was st- struck this morning by something on Morning Joe. You know, I often watch that show in the morning. And, um, and Mika Brzezinski is the co-host. And it's something that she said this morning. And uh, I'll, I'll play it. It's, um, it's in response to Donald Trump calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas yesterday, I guess, at uh, a ceremony for the Navajo War Heroes. Uh, and this is what she said about um, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is um, Donald Trump's press secretary. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, of course, came out and said, the problem is not that Donald Trump called her Pocahontas during the ceremony, but that um, she, Elizabeth Warren, used her distant Native American history to get some advantage in affirmative action at one point at Harvard or whatever. So that's the real problem. So that's what we're just coming away from. And here we have Mika. So I'm going to have to share this. And we go to this. And we go to this, and I think we just do this. And this is about 50 seconds. Speaking of women, the women in the White House are a sorry example of where we should be. It is so sad to watch what is happening with the women in the White House. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, if I was the White House press secretary and for some for some forsaken reason I had lasted until this point and that happened, I'd be like, John Kelly, this one's yours. You're doing the briefing today. How do you think John Kelly would have handled the briefing? Do you think he would have lied? Do you think he would have said the things that you said, Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Do you think he would have actually defended that language? Do you think he really would have allowed that to happen. All right. So uh, this is what I'm saying. Willie. I cannot watch a woman go out there okay. and shill for this president and shill for his racism and his bigotry. It is so painful. We do not need this. That's a view that, you know, uh, the, 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 it, it's particularly offensive that a woman is out there um, defending Donald Trump. And this put me in mind of a of a, a, a quote from Michelle Obama that I saw a couple weeks ago when she was giving a talk at a conference in Boston. And I'll just quote, I'll just read what she said. She said, any woman who voted against Hillary Clinton voted against her own voice. What does it mean for us as women that we look at these two candidates, Donald Trump um, and Hillary Clinton, that we look at them as women And some of us said, that guy, he's better for me. His voice is more true to me. Well, to me, that just sounds like you don't like your own voice. You like the thing you're told to like. So it's this idea that women are somehow co-opted into supporting Donald Trump, for instance. 
And, um, and it reminds me, it takes me back to uh, my years at Naropa University here in Boulder, which is a Buddhist university, very progressive, very green. And I love Naropa. And I had a great run there in their Masters of Divinity program. But this was at the turn of the last century. So 1999, 2000, 2001, in 2002, actually. And the assumption among my classmates and colleagues was that women throughout history had been basically co-opted, that they had been uh, unconsciously oppressed, that there was a, in a sense, colossal Stockholm syndrome. And that women needed to be liberated from this domination, mental, uh, unconscious domination by men that had been in force certainly since what we would call the red meme or the warrior stage of development, which is the beginning of the patriarchy, and that the patriarchy is still online. And they're right about the patriarchy patriarchy still being online, and they're right about the patriarchy coming in at the warrior stage of development. Um, which is when it was time for um, uh, society to organize in a more complex way. And men dominating and women submitting was the way that that worked. And because it was based on physical power. And that stratus still in there for all of us, even though we've laid on top of it traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. But um, I actually think that that assumption that, you know, women are uh, unconsciously dominated by men in, 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 in a manufactured consent kind of thing. I think that's gone away a lot in the last, you know, 20, 15 years. Um, Fox News hadn't really taken hold yet when I was in divinity school. And, um, and we see now women uh, all over the media, all over the map, who are, um, you know, firebrand conservatives. I talked about Ann Coulter yesterday. She's a, she's a perfect example of that. So I do think that we're um, realizing that women are free agents and actually have been through history in the sense that they naturally support the stage of development that they're at, that they and the men are at. They're, 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 they're cooperating in that system. Um, whatever it might be. And it reminds me of a, um, a story that really caught my fancy uh, when I read this book, one of my favorite books of, of the last couple of years called Empire of the Summer Moon, which is a story of the rise and fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history. And it's the story largely of Cynthia Ann Parker, who is a legendary figure in the American West. And she was, um, as a child, she was um, a, a child of 11 years old. She was taken by the Comanches. The, the Comanches came and they basically obliterated the fort that, that she lived in and, um, and killed her parents and killed all the men and took her and her cousin. And she lived then as a Comanche for the next um, 24 years, till she was 34 years old, when she was rescued by the uh, Texans who came in in 1860 and 
rescued her from the Comanche. She had essentially become a Comanche in the meantime. And, um, and it, it has the same sort of uh, resonance for me as some of, you know, like what Mika and Michelle Obama were saying is that as a woman, she had a sort of a special responsibility not to, um, not to, 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 be, uh, not to become a Comanche. So I'll read what he, what he writes about this. He talks about, consider the 19th century accounts of the captivity of Cynthia Ann Parker, the legendary white squaw who chose the red man over the white man and a life of unwashed savagery over the comforts of, quote, civilization. Most of these accounts are informed by a sort of bewildered disbelief that anyone, but especially a woman, could possibly want to do that. And he talks about that the result of her, you know, she was a sensation in her time when she was recaptured and brought back to the white people. Um, he talks about that there were uh, weirdly incongruous attempts to graft European romantic ideals on the Stone Age culture from where she came. And he talks about there's, there was, on one side, it was sort of romanticized, and on the other side, it was like she was just an abject victim. He says, Cynthia Ann, and, and this is in this first sort of romantic vision, Cynthia Ann is seen falling in love, wandering through a fragrant flower-strewn field, discussing the prospects of canoeble bliss with her warrior swain. He talks about there was a historical account that was actually completely made up about her younger brother who didn't exist in reality, uh, and that he was, uh, um, he was courting a night-eyed Aztec beauty, a captive herself, whiling away the idle hours in amorous talk. So it was a sort of noble, savage, uh, romantic thing. And then he said, the other version of her life assumed... Uh, uh, the reverse, a harsh reality in which Cynthia Ann was suffering terrible hardship and, quote, degradation. But in this case, it was happening entirely against her will. The idea, expressed in delicate Victorian code, of course, was that she was forced to have sex with greasy, dark-skinned, subhuman Indians because she could not possibly have chosen to do so on her own. And um, And it's, um, it's fascinating to see how we put the worldview that we're in, we project that onto these various situations and, and make our judgments. And what's great, about, um, what's great about this book, I think that this book actually has a very integral sensibility, and I would recommend anybody who likes to read history to read Empire of the Summer Moon. Because he talks about the reality of what happened to Cynthia Ann Parker. You know, that the, the, the truth was actually some of both. She really did, in her heart, become a Comanche. And she married and she had three sons, one of whom, Juana uh, Parker. Juana Parker is a legendary Comanche chief. And he was the son of her and the chief. So she actually had a relatively good life. And it turns out that the Comanches, and uh, it, 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 he surmises that this is true of, of tribal cultures in general, when they, um, 
conquer another tribe, or in this case, they conquered the fort of, uh, I don't know how many white people who are living out in the you know, hinterlands of Northwest Texas. Um, they were savage. I mean, the, her father was scalped, his genitals were cut off, cut off his, her mother was raped, her grandmother was defiled. It was a whole thing. She saw it, you know. Uh, her cousin was um, abducted with her. And, um, and so they, um, so, so it's brutal. And on the other hand, if a kid was in the range of a young adolescent, they would often adopt them into the tribe. Her older cousin was treated as a sex slave the whole time they were in captivity because she was 12 years older. But Cynthia Ann was actually, uh, you know, incorporated into the tribe. So, so here it is, uh, after Cynthia Ann is, is, is so-called rescued from the tribe, he writes, we'll never know how Cynthia Ann Parker felt in the weeks and months after, after her rescue. But it was painfully apparent from the earliest days that the real tragedy in her life was not her first captivity, but her second. White men never quite grasped this. The event that destroyed her life, her life was not the raid at Parker's Fort in 1836, but her miraculous and much celebrated rescue at Mule Creek in 1860 by the white people. The latter killed her husband, the chief, separated her forever from her beloved sons, she had three, and deposited her in a culture where she was more a true captive than she had ever been with the Comanches. In the moments before Ross's raid, where she was captured, she had been quite as primitive as any other Plains Indian. And here he begins to get in. This is, I love his sort of integral sensibility of taking us into the worldview and the world of uh, tribal people. And he talks about she was as primitive, primitive as any other Plains Indian, packing thousands of pounds of buffalo meat onto mules, covered from head to toe in blood and grease literally immersed in this elemental world that never quite left the Stone Age, a world of ceaseless toil, hunger, constant war, and early death, but also of pure magic, of beaver ceremonies and eagle dances, of spirits that inhabited springs, trees, rocks, turtles, and crows a place where people danced all night and sang bear medicine songs, where wolf medicine made a person invulnerable to billets, bullets. Dream visions dictated tribal policy, and ghosts were alive in the wind. On grassy plains and timbered river bottoms from Kansas to Texas, Cynthia Ann, and her name was Nata, that's her Comanche name, uh, drifted in the mystical cycles of the seasons, living in that random, terrifying, bloody, and intensely alive place where nature and divinity became one. I love that. And then suddenly it all disappeared. Instead of Stone Age camps, a swirl in magic and taboo and scented smoke from the Mesquite Lodge fires, she found herself sitting on taffeta chairs in drawing rooms on the outer margins of the Industrial Revolution. Being, being interrogated by polite, uncomprehending white men who believed in a single God 
And in a supremely rational universe where everything could be explained, the new culture was every bit as alien as the one she confronted after the attack on Parker's Fort. And I love that. And, um, and so this is just the, the, the quick summation of her story. She lived in a, another 11 years among the white people, but never really, never assimilated. Uh, he writes, and this is just one last paragraph. Cynthia Ann was not only unrepentant, she was actively and incessantly hostile to her captors, to her white captors. She tried repeatedly to escape with her daughter. She had a daughter, Prairie Flower, uh, by her Indian husband, who was also captured with her, uh, rescued with her. She tried repeatedly to escape with her daughter, sometimes making it far into the woods and requiring a search party to find her. She was so intent on leaving that Isaac, her uncle, who she lived with, had to lock her in the house when he was away. Cynthia Ann was being treated as though she was crazy. An entirely free white woman, 33 years old and from a prominent family, was being forcibly restrained so that she could not return to her sons and the culture that raised her. Her family believed that, owing to a life in which they assumed she had been sexually abused and beaten and enslaved, she was unable to know what was best for her. Cynthia Ann, meanwhile, always had a clear and quite correct sense of her own interests. Such treatment must have been terrible for her to endure. And I love, this is the key. Cynthia Ann, meanwhile, always had a clear and quite correct sense of her interests. And that's, you know, what we need to remember and bring in to this discussion about, uh, you know, the morality of, of women and their extra responsibility to be at a stage higher than they might be um, or have a worldview that's different than the one they actually have. And we see this, we, you know, and so, so I just gave you a perfect example of, of that in the tribal society. She was tribal. She became tribal. And she, that's where, where she wanted to be. That was she wasn't being dominated. Um, she was in a society where women were submissive, but she wanted to be there. And we see that in the red warrior societies. Um, I talk, you know, often about how the honor killings are often really, you know, driven by the mothers who want to protect the honor of their family and so have their daughters killed if they're defiled in some way. And, you know, we see this through history. That red strata is still online for us. Uh, we, you know, we lay the other ones on top. But um, I, I think of Lady Macbeth as a classic example of this. And she's the wife of a Scottish nobleman. And if he would only kill the king, he would become king. But he won't because he is, in her opinion, too full of the milk of human kindness. And um, so Lady Macbeth uh, seeks to basically force her husband to kill the king. And she does it in this classic way of red women by belittling his manhood and courage. And, um, and finally, you know, wins him over and he does it. And um, she becomes the queen of Scotland. She gets her comeuppance, but you know, that's that sort of red behind the scenes woman. She may be, you know, not able to walk out in the street without a male, um, uh, you know, a, a 
some, some attendant, but, um, but she has a red heart and that's where she wants to be. And, um, and, 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 and we can't hold her to some different kind of a standard. It's actually sexist in a way that is disrespectful to the, it's like with Cynthia Ann, disrespectful to her wishes. She's a grown woman. She could live wherever she wants. Um, I remember friends of mine, um, years ago, they, they were into religion. Uh, they got into fundamentalist Christian religion and, you know, they decided to live biblically and, um, and that means that women are submissive to men. And there was a period where it was like the guy would say, honey, make me a sandwich. And she would go up and make him a sandwich. And I remember it drove me out of my mind. I was, it was maybe crazy to see that, that she was submissive in that way. And I think they did it to make a point, actually, because they don't do it so much anymore. But here we are 30 years later, and they're the, one of the happiest couples I know. And they have a terrific family. And, <laughs> and she's not, uh, she may be submissive in sort of a biblical way, but she's not a shrinking violet. Uh, I was uh, actually talking to him on the phone, and this was during the campaign, uh, Hillary and, and Trump. And, um, and I hear her from the kitchen yelling, um, we need a president with some balls, Jeff. We need a president with some balls for a change. And, uh, you know, so she's a traditionalist, uh, but she's, nobody's making her, you know, nobody's dominating her mind. She's, she's a traditionalist through and through. And, um, you know, so you can actually have, you know, make the case that, um, you know, these women may choose to support Trump. Now, I think, you know, I've said many times, anybody who actively supports Trump in his sort of bullshit illusions and delusions um, is going to have to, you know, account for it with their grandchildren, if nobody else. But I don't think women have an extra responsibility there. And then so, so we looked at tribal, we looked at the red warrior, we look at traditionalists, uh, you know, women participating, women right there the whole way, and right up into modernists. And Modernists have a, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of attitude about a lot of things. And uh, one of those is the patriarchy, which continued to survive into, you know, about two months ago or six weeks ago or whenever it was when we had the Harvey Weinstein thing. And then we had an earthquake in the society where we sort of realized that this, you know, unspoken uh, domination, submission of women that survived into Capitol Hill and Hollywood and, you know, all of this, uh, their whole modern society was just unacceptable. All of a sudden, it became unacceptable. And yet, you know, we got to remember that there were women participating in that too, and still are. And I was, I remember, uh, you know, when the Harvey Weinstein thing was happening, I was talking, talking to a woman friend of mine who is, you know, about my age, she's in her early 60s. And, um, and I was saying, you know, as we were talking about this and how this was all melting down and how bad Harvey Weinstein was and all of this, that I mentioned we should also remember the women who took the deal. And we're glad they did. 
You know, they gave Harvey what he wanted and he gave them what they wanted. And, you know, they were kind of good with it. And she was like, I can't imagine that there are many of them. And, and then she was thinking about it and she said, oh my God, you know, I realize that, um, well, she had been in business and in sort of a consulting kind of thing where she was in a lot of organizations. And she said, you know, I have to admit, I always went after the alpha men. And it was my professor. It was when I was a consultant. I'd go to these conferences. Who were the, 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 the male in charge. I would go, and if I could, I would seduce him. And whether or not he was married uh, wasn't really that important. Uh, and then, you know, and I know her well, and there was a story about where she had finally met the wife of one of the men that she had had an affair with. And it, and it dawned on this, oh, she had a moral awakening that, oh, my God, I can't believe I haven't even considered these women. And then she did and stopped that behavior. Uh, but there was a whole era of her life where, you know, she was taking that deal. And... um and so, you know, let's keep that in mind. You know, the, the, the feminine, um, th there's a myth of, 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 of moral superiority for women that just is not, you know, coherent with reality. And, you know, I just think that we ought to keep that in mind. Um, I was seeing uh, on, on Sunday, Cokie Roberts was on, I guess, the George Stephanopoulos show, I think that's, but she was one of the panelists on the Sunday show. And she was talking about how for years, the female press corps had covered up sexual misconduct uh, for John Conyers. And she said, you know, we all talked about it for years. You don't get in the elevator with him. And everybody knew that you just don't get in the elevator with him. And we, you know, the stories of JFK, of LBJ, even George H.W. Bush at 93 years old, he's still groping women from his wheelchair. You know, there was six or seven women come out with that about him. And, you know, two months ago that was still happening. Now it's seen as outrageous. And that is moral development. And we're all waking up to it, you know, together. And so... um, I guess I'll stop there. I just, I just want to say that there's, I know there's a lot of territory here and there's a lot going on with the evolution of uh, masculinity, femininity, men and women, the difference between the two, gender, sex, all of that sort of thing. And it's one of the things that, you know, I want to explore on, and do actually on the Daily Evolver. And we're going to have some uh, good uh, stuff coming up.